When I think of Easter, I think of bright sunshine, colorful flowers, spirited singing, and people in church dressed in their finest outfits. Well, at least all of you dressed in your finest outfits. I'm not sure if I've ever had an Easter outfit, so <laughs> not sure what that would look like. I'll work on that till next year. But as Ron expressed so well in his sermon on Easter Sunday morning, he declared Easter a time of extravagance, joyful, exuberant music, and loud celebration. And why not? With Easter, something new and powerful has been released. Something wonderful has happened. Out of suffering and pain and death, new life has emerged. And for more than 2,000 years of this mystery, the wonder and the celebration has not stopped. Well, we're now two weeks from Easter morning, so it's, good, it's a good time for a little reflection on some of the other meanings at East, of Easter that we may have mit, missed midst all of our celebration. In our scripture passage from Luke, it is still that first Easter evening, and once again, Jesus makes one of those post-resurrection appearances. It happens suddenly, the way most of them do. There's no cell phone call first to inform the disciples when he will be there. He just shows up. Now, we know the backdrop to the resurrection appearance as well. For the disciples, things have unraveled totally out of control. The boot of empire has come down on Jerusalem, setting off a calculated spiral of events that cast Jesus as a criminal and revolutionary. By implication, the disciples and all who associated with Jesus are also under suspicion and in grave danger. And justice was nowhere to be found in Jesus' summary trial. Now, according to scholars, both the Greeks, Romans, and Judeans all considered honor and shame to be pivotal values in their culture. So in addition to the obvious physical pain inflicted on Jesus, there was no effort spared to publicly shame him. And if you look through the gospel stories, here's at least a partial list of the ways in which that happened. He was spit upon, hit in the head with a stick, whipped, stripped of his clothing, given a crown of thorns and a purple robe to simultaneously create and then mock his role as king of the Jews. He was, cruci he was crucified, which was an excruciating death normally reserved for slaves and bandits and revolutionaries who threatened the security of the empire. And even on the cross, he was taunted. If you're God's son, come down off the cross. This public shaming by the power structures had a strong demoralizing effect on his disciples. One by one, the disciples left the scene. There's the story of Peter that we all remember when he publicly denied knowing Jesus three times. And while we righteously cluck our tongues at Peter from the safety of 21 centuries, he could feel the tension rising in his chest, knowing that he was only perhaps a wink and a nod away from suffering Jesus' fate. He lied, denying all knowledge of Jesus. So with their beloved teacher publicly shamed and executed by the imperial forces of Rome and their local puppets, the disciples go into hiding, deep mourning, and an intense round of self-examination. Could they have prevented this? Had the past three years been for nothing? 
individually and as a community, they have been traumatized and they will not soon recover. And then it happens. Jesus starts appearing. First there is the empty tomb, then he is seen by Mary, and then he walks with two followers all the way, way to Emmaus, and now he shows up in Jerusalem. He's back. And this is where the intense emotions and mixture of emotions jumble together. They are afraid, they're overjoyed, they're terrified, they're confused, they're worried, they're ecstatic, they're doubtful. Some of the questions are obvious and have been mentioned in the story. Is, is he a ghost? Is it really Jesus? Is he really alive? Are we hallucinating? But there are other questions and fears not found in the text that I kind of wonder about. Could it be that Peter, for example, would rather not face the wounded Jesus? Was Peter struggling with feelings of shame and inner wounds of his own? Did Peter worry that Jesus was somehow aware of his denial and that dreadfully incriminating crow of the crock, crow of the rooster? Could it be, I wonder, that in the days following the crucifixion, some of the disciples, midst all of their sadness, also felt a measure of ah, relief. Maybe it was over. This whole upside-down kingdom of God thing, this, this struggle to include the sick and the outcast, all this effort to build an alternative community on principles of justice, this constant conflict with the keepers of the law and the temple system, this loving of Samaritans and other enemies, maybe it's just all ended with the crucifixion. Maybe they can just give it up, let it go, be normal again. Maybe they can go back to fishing, collecting taxes. Wouldn't that be kind of a relief? So when Jesus shows up, this, this wounded Jesus shows up, I wonder if maybe some of the disciples felt like shrinking back because if it's not over after all, maybe this really is for real. And if it's for real, they can't give up. But if they keep following Jesus, maybe they'll end up with his wounds. What happened to Jesus may also happen to them. And do they really have the strength for this? These fears aren't verbalized in the text, but fear is present among the disciples at every appearance. And Ched Myers, in his commentary on Marx, notes that when the women discover the empty tomb, they are met by a white-robed man, and they were terrified. Myers notes that a white robe is the clothing of a martyr figure. So if the tomb is empty, and they are instructed to meet Jesus in Galilee, can martyrdom be far behind? Well, with this as background, it's understandable that Jesus' first words are always, Peace be unto you. There were no words of recrimination, no scolding, just words of invitation, come, see, touch. There are no words of revenge, no plans of revolt against the Romans, just peace. Don't be afraid. Now, in last week's story with Thomas, there is explicit reference to Jesus' wounds. And in today's story, the reference is more implicit, as Jesus invites his disciples to look at his hands and look at his feet, the place where his wounds would show. I find great comfort 
in this story about a risen yet wounded Jesus appearing to his disciples. The comfort is in knowing that after woundedness, there can be resurrection. The comfort is in knowing that woundedness and resurrection can coexist. The comfort is in knowing that the Christ who walks with us also bears human wounds. True, his resurrected body in these stories goes through doors, appearing and disappearing at will, but it is almost as if he goes out of his way to say, it's me, the human Christ, the wounded Christ. You can know me by my wounds. Isn't this the way our world is? Don't we see woundedness and resurrection side by side everywhere we turn? Whether we're first century disciples, 16th century Anabaptists, or followers of Jesus on East Chestnut Street at, in 2009, Resurrection power does not turn us into super otherworldly beings. We still have wounds. We still have losses. We still have pain in our lives. We have been wounded. We may have been wounded by church. We may have been wounded by family. We may have been wounded by empire. Or we may have wounds that are self-inflicted. And just as Jesus emerged from the tomb through resurrection power, still bearing wounds, still bearing the wounds of empire, so resurrection power can give us life and hope midst our woundedness. How? How can Branislav Kapatanovich, a Yugoslav army ordnance expert, lose both legs and both hands to a U.S. cluster bomb? endure 20 surgeries and four years in the hospital and declare in Oslo last December that he is the happiest man on earth. How can this be? How can Lynn Braddock, mother of a U.S. Marine named Travis, who was killed by a cluster bomb in Iraq, find the grace to say that through this dreadfully painful experience, she has somehow become a better person? How? How can this be? How is it that Matt Matisson, a Vietnam veteran, could emerge from 15 years of post-traumatic stress disorder, anger and silence about his inner wounds, find his voice and find healing midst his wounds? How can this be? How is it that Carolyn Schrockshank, a good friend of ours, whose paralysis finally led to life in a wheelchair, came to find renewed energy and joy by expressing gratitude and thanks for the things she still can do. Friends, these are not sort of whistling in the dark kind of events. These are not things that happen simply by singing, keep on the sunny side of life. There's something more powerful happening here. This is crocuses pushing up through the ice kind of power. This is salmon leaping upward through rushing waterfalls kinds of power. This is the persistent and transforming power of God's spirit. And I'm just like one of the disciples in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. I'm amazed. I'm, I'm wondering. I'm disbelieving. I'm, I'm baffled, baffled by this powerful mystery. Carolyn describes the mystery this way. I have not yet seen God or goodness 
in the reality of my wheelchair. Nor am I one bit grateful for my paralysis. What I am clear about, however, is that God specializes in helping us mine the gold from these difficult situations, and that much good can be part of my future. I am trying to trust that in this life, this life so very, very different from the one that I wanted, my life can be rich and meaningful and complete. Bronislav's description of his recovery from his woundedness reflects a similar reality. He does not describe it in traditional religious terms. Yet it is clear that something powerful has happened in this man's life and spirit. This is part of the statement that he made in Oslo to the entire assembly of diplomats from 94 countries as they gathered to sign a treaty banning cluster bombs. And I quote, the Oslo process has meant a lot to me because I have been able to fight against something that has brought a lot of suffering into my life and left me without arms and legs, with severe injuries that brought immense post-traumatic consequences, deprived me of normal life, made me dependent on others even for simple tasks of hygiene or nourishment, deprived me of finding a lifetime partner or even making love, left me without hope, left me in the dark. The Oslo process gave me a new life, gave me strength to live on. Now my life has a new meaning and I have a future. Now I feel there is light." End of quote. Wounds do not prevent us from experiencing the power of resurrection. Like Jesus' appearances to the disciples, this power often enters when we least expect it, including among people who may appear weak in terms of the powers of this world. But let me join Carolyn in suggesting that there is no virtue in woundedness itself. Wheelchairs are not to be sought after. Losing one's limbs to a cluster bomb does not in itself grant us spiritual strength. But physical wounds and disabilities do strip away our pretense of self-sufficiency, individual power, and control. And wounds of all kinds, if acknowledged, can lead us to seek help from others. I noticed in the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus that the community which Jesus created among his followers remained. Even before Jesus appeared, the disciples, the community was gathered together, huddled together to nurture their wounds and protect one another from the capricious powers of empire. They were a community that despite the trauma they had experienced, hung together. They were a community of the wounded. No wonder the power of the risen and wounded Jesus became present to them, for it is among people who can acknowledge and know their weakness that resurrection power can flourish. And it is perhaps here that we, and I mean we at East Chester Street, have our greatest opportunity and our greatest challenge. We pride ourselves in knowing the wonder and the meaning and the value of community. It is part of what defines us. We call it one of our core values. But we are, in also, we are also in many ways a powerful people. 
Things like gender, class, skin color, education, jobs, and nationality have all conferred privileges upon many of us while excluding some of these privileges from others among us. If our privileges, if we allow our privileges to suck us into the race for social status and success as defined by our culture, it becomes more and more difficult to follow a wounded Jesus, especially a Jesus who bears the wounds of empire. It also makes it more difficult to see and know our own woundedness. And so we face the challenge of making our faith community not one of power and privileges where the wounded Christ and wounded people are not welcome. No, our community must be open to the world so that we and others can know the strength and courage and the healing that comes from following a wounded and risen Jesus. As we 21st century Christians remember that our risen Lord is wounded, we too, like the disciples, are faced with questions. Do we want to follow this Jesus? Do we, like Thomas and the other disciples, really want to know and touch a Jesus who is wounded? Do we whose lives have been privileged and graced by empire want to follow a Jesus who was killed by empire and still bears the wounds of that empire? What might it mean for us to follow a Jesus like that? What does it mean to be part of a worldwide community of faith, to be linked through Christ with many whose bodies and souls bear the wounds of the empire that we enjoy. Do we want to be part of a community that lives in tension with the culture and the powers around it? And what are those points of tension? for us? Do we want to be a part of a community that is open about our social power, yet honest about our woundedness, our neediness? What, noon, what wounds do we have that need healing? The wounded, risen Christ is truly among us in our midst. Let us not shrink back from meeting him and following him. And let us bring these questions, all of our questions, our doubts, and our fears with us. The wounded, risen Christ welcomes them, even as he welcomes us to continue the journey. In closing, I want to read a poem by Jan Richardson from Garden of Hollows, entering the mysteries of Lent and Easter. One year, for my springtime birthday, David gave me a new pot. In the pot was a crack, a wound he had torn into it before the firing. Through the crack grew a green shoot of ivy 
that he had planted in the hollow of the vessel. It sits on a bookshelf as a reminder, a witness to the ways that new life seeks its way through the wounds. Anticipate resurrection, Terry Tempest William urges. In the deepest depths, in the hollows of our lives and of our own flesh, there are luminous thresholds whose edges we find only by tracing the openings they offer. Christ who is in resurrection, Christ who in his resurrection still bore the wounds of his crucifixion, stands ever at the threshold. He is both a tough and a graceful companion, given as he is to offering both challenge and comfort for the way. Anticipate resurrection. Surely it comes, door by door, it comes.